everyone, welcome to this new episode of Let's Chat Politics. I am Elliot, your host, and today I have our very first guest, Christophe Orvat. Thank you for coming, Christophe. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, Christophe is from Hungary and specialized in flawed democracies. And today we're going to have a little discussion about Hungarian politics and the relationship of the Hungarian government with the European Union. Uh, so first of all, for the people that don't know you on yeah. the podcast, can you please introduce yourself? Yeah, so hello everyone, I'm Christoph Horvat. I, I am from Hungary and I do specialize in yeah, flawed democracies. I guess that's, that's already a, a thing to discuss is whether we think of them as flawed democracies or something else, but basically political systems that are somewhat democratic, but not, not fully. And I'm I'm a third year PhD candidate at the DPE. I also am a GTA. That's how I've I've known Elliot and all the others at the Politics Society. I taught them CPS, which I'm sure they loved and they yes, and we were amazing students. They they were amazing <laughs> and they, they did go on record to say that it was the best module they've ever done and the best ever. seminar. So yes, okay. I'm That's, glad that we recorded. We were on the same page. Okay. <laughs> okay, so to to dive into more uh, of the politics side of yeah. this podcast. Um so Hungarian politics are not necessarily necessarily the most famous politics um, globally. Yeah. Uh, so can you rapidly explain how the political system works in, in Hungary? Yeah, it, it, I mean, it's a complex question, right? And, mm. and I think uh, the idea is to focus on a few sort of really maybe unique characteristics or the most sort of uh, um, striking ones. So in a sense... What most people know about Hungary is, yes, it's a small Eastern European country. It's a post-socialist country, so it used to be a socialist regime, and then it transitioned into something in the early 90s, uh, and that it's in the EU. And so as an EU country, you'd expect it to be at least somewhat democratic. Um, and that is true to a degree. Um, so I would classify Hungary as, as a hybrid regime, and, and that sort of brings us into outlining Hungarian politics, which in a very short sense is that there are democratic institutions in Hungary, but the way they function isn't particularly democratic. The idea is that any sort of institution, whether it's in a democracy or not, is going to have its sort of formal outlines, and then within it, it's going to have some sort of way it functions, which uh, which we can refer to as the dominant mode of accommodation, right? So one institution uh, would be elections, and then the way elections work will vary, but usually it means that people will go to a place and they'll get a piece of paper and choose whoever they want to vote for, and that's how elections work. And then, of course, elections also fit into broader categories. So the idea is that in Hungary we see these institutions like elections, like a functioning judiciary, like a legislature that seems to be somewhat separated from the executive. So they're all there, but their democratic content is missing. Uh, the same party has been in power for 12 years, led by the same person, Prime Minister Orban. Uh, is that they took these institutions and within them they created these central arenas of power which kind of drained them from their democratic content and left them in a way that it really serves particularistic interests. Uh, Hungary, even after the transition in 1990, wasn't a consolidated, well-functioning democracy, but it was certainly more democratic before 2010 than since then. Okay. So there were somewhat flawed institutions, and as you said, yes, 
the, the government very deliberately undermined them. That brings me to my second point. So you said that Hungary could be described as a hybrid regime, yeah. which is um, what Freedom House describes Hungary as. However, Hungary is still in the EU, which emphasizes personal rights, property, education human rights, etc. In the EU framework, do you think it's legitimate to consider Hungary as a flawed democracy? And if so, why do you think the country has been able to stay in the EU when it does not necessarily fit in its rights and freedoms expectations? Yeah, that, that is a good question. I mean, that's actually several questions. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, on, on one hand, yes, Hungary is increasingly recognized by the international community as a flawed democracy or the hybrid regime. As a matter of fact, the EU parliament just passed the resolution that pointed out that actually Hungary is some form of hybrid regime. Of course, their set of frameworks and criteria is going to be somewhat different from what we see in academia, but the idea is that now even they officially recognize that you know this isn't a fully functioning consolidated democracy. And it's been a while, so interestingly, things like Freedom House and such really only started to catch up with this democratic deterioration Uh, a few years ago, relatively. So in the initial phase of this transformation after 2010, the international community still very much considered Hungary a functioning democracy, even though it already arguably wasn't. It's somewhat paradoxic, isn't it, that the EU itself would say Hungary is not a full yeah, functioning democracy. Yeah, and yet democracy. they accept it as a, part of the community. And, and yeah, yeah, it exactly. is. And they have thus far enjoyed all the benefits mm -hmm. of being in the EU. Of course, the big discussion is whether this resolution that identified Hungary as, as a lesser democracy is going to lead to the withdrawal or the withholding of EU funds. Because that's really the main tool that the EU can use, right? It's money, and that's the sort of conditionality that they've been using. We're not sure yet whether this is actually going to happen or there is some agreement. There have been sort of fascinating studies on whether the EU is a constraint to Hungary and Hungarian hybridization or whether it actually enables it. Being in the EU legitimizes the Hungarian regime on an international level. Because others can criticize it for being non-democratic, but then they say, well, listen, if the situation was that bad, they'd kick us out. Uh, although, of course, we know that this isn't that simple. Yeah, it has never happened, right? No, kicking, it has kicking, never kicking happened. Country out. Yeah. And of course, that's again ties into the fact that to kick a country out, all the others would need to agree, and yeah, like, yeah. that never happened. By being in the EU, the Hungarian regime couldn't cross certain boundaries, and they had to be quite careful. And so... As a result, what we see is a hybrid regime that was constructed very gradually and rather cautiously. And slowly, it's almost like a slow-cooked meal, right? When it's under big pressure, but it, it happens over a longer period of time, which then results in this whatever succulent meat, which in this instance is arguably one of the most mature forms of a hybrid political system. And, and it's not unreasonable to argue that this is because of the constraints of the EU, because in other cases you start hybridizing and then you might sort of get carried away and, and either establish a fully authoritarian regime or fail in your attempts, because maintaining an authoritarian regime is challenging. They always had to test the waters. So they try certain things, see the EU's reaction, and, and, then, and then when they showed that they were all right, then they went a bit further and a bit further. Sometimes they went a bit back. Mm. So it's a sort of back and forth period. But so they're it, looking 
to see which point they can reach. Exactly, how far yeah. they can go. And interestingly, thus far, the answer has been pretty much as far as they want. So yeah. I think in many instances, as the regime is constraining itself because they think the EU might react in certain ways, I think they could have gone further down mm. the hybridization line earlier, but they didn't want to risk it. There is a, a, a rather instrumentalist economic perspective to it, which is that Hungary provides cheap labor to many Western countries and companies so most of the of the major german automobile companies have factories in hungary where they assemble either parts of their cars or in the entirety of their cars and Hungary is pretty much the cheapest labor force that they can find. The regulations and the workers' rights aren't as strict. They're definitely less strict than they are in Germany. Mm -hmm. We basically have no functioning unions. So it is in the economic interest of, of these countries to take advantage of the cheap labor force, on the one hand. On the other hand, we also see this interesting thing, and, and again, this is more so an international relation thing, potentially borderline conspiracy theory territory, but the the EU will often propose certain things that they themselves are not very keen on passing. And then what we'll see is that Hungary vetoes these things and kind of takes the blame. Uh, and it can be quite useful to have someone whose international recognition is problematic enough that they say, listen, you tolerate us and then, you know, we'll take the blame for the unpopular stuff. For instance, in the uh, in the sanctions against Russia, which yeah, Hungary is still very vocally against, nevertheless, they agreed to some of it. But we also see that they have vetoed certain elements that arguably no one in the EU really wanted to pass. But then it was convenient to say like, oh, we tried, but then Hungary vetoed it. That brings me, you, you brought me onto the next yeah. point about the EU and especially the, the war with Russia. Sorry, just to clarify, because yeah. it almost sounds like it means the EU's war with Russia. No, 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 no. But it's, Sorry, which I'll... is what Russia is saying. But yeah, it's like no, the, not... the, the Russian yeah. invasion of Ukraine. It's a yeah. bit of a, of a slippery slope. Yeah. How would you describe uh, Viktor Orban, so, who is the Prime Minister yes. of Hungary, how would you describe his stance on the Russian invasion in Ukraine? So again, this is a, a super complicated issue, and I don't know how far back we should go. We see this weird transformation amongst supporters of the regime and, and most supporters of the, the Fidesz regime in Hungary, which again has been in power since 2010, are sort of identify as right-wing conservative. So traditionally in Hungary, right-wing conservatives are of course very critical of socialism and communism and the country's communist past. And consequently, we're also quite wary of Russia because, I mean, we still see it that even though the Soviet Union ended, there's many elements of, of Russian politics that very clearly and deliberately sort of tries to maintain this continuity between the Soviet Union and Russia. So these people, with, with, with Orban himself, you know, prior to 2010, this was an adamant critic, critic of, of Russia. He famously held that speech before the transition, the late 80s, that called upon, uh, you know, Soviet troops to leave Hungary immediately. And so then, since 2010, we see this gradual shift where the regime and its supporters were becoming gradually friendlier towards Russia. And also, weirdly, there's this re revisionist sense when they're very favorable towards Hungary's communist past. So now we're in a situation when the supposed left-wing intellectuals are the ones who are critical of the socialists and the right-wing conservatives <laughs> are the ones who said, 
oh, how amazing it was when, you know, we had Soviet troops in Hungary, and, you know, it, which, which is weird. But from more real political perspective, yes, Orban has been a strategic ally of Putin. That, that is clear. And there are economic and political ties uh, between the two countries. Again, we're not going to discuss all of this uh, in this podcast, but, but they exist. A very common theme that comes up in Hungarian politics is that Putin and the Russians have some sort of compromising information about Orban and that maybe he was some sort of agent of the system before the transition. Again, there's no proof for this. Yeah, but it's all power gains. But it is all, which again is is quite common in Russian politics. And it is imaginable that there was something. But but the point is, this issue is so prevalent in Hungarian public discourse that that there is large theories about what does Putin have on Orban, that he, you know, is is making him do all these things. But the, the, this can be seen in in the current situation as well and in the Russian invasion of Ukraine is the Hungarian government isn't going too much against the sort of EU mainstream. So, of course, they say, oh, the invasion is bad. We should respect the territorial sovereignty of Ukraine. Uh, but they do it in a way that is still very favorable to Russians. So we have these narratives when they say, you know, well, kind of both sides are at fault here. And like, we should just get immediate peace, which is unclear whether that means that the Russians should stay in their, you know, occupied mm-hmm. territories or not. There's this narrative from many government uh, affiliated people that, oh, it's all sort of American machinations and, and it's... it's uh, these underground movements who are trying to undermine Russian politics and Hungary as well. So it's complicated. It's also complicated because Ukraine has a considerable territory called Karpataya, which historically used to belong to Hungary, was removed after the First World War. And there's still a considerable Hungarian population living in Ukraine. So the government's narrative was, well, our priority is to protect Hungarians living there. And we do see that sometimes the Ukrainian army will disproportionately use these Hungarian minorities and send them to the front lines. So there's been some historic conflict between Hungarians and Ukrainians, so that also comes out. And so, um, about Orban, sorry about the way I pronounce no, it. No, no. Probably it's far fine. away from how Hungarians pronounce it. That's cool. It's okay. I think it, it makes him sound more fancy. In a more way, fancy, so yeah, but people say that the French accent makes everything sound more that, fancy. That is true. Yeah. But it's just we don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> Orban made very, very clear multiple times, and even through his policies, yeah. Uh, that he has conservative values, so through, for example, anti-abortion positions. So economically and socially speaking, how do you think uh, his values reflect his party's values? And do you think that there's certain specific policies, like abortion, for example, where we can visualize Orbán's conservative side? Yeah, this sort of brings us back, because you asked about how his views reflect the party's views, mm-hmm. and this brings us back to how to summarize Hungarian politics. Yeah. So in a democracy, there is supposed to be a separation of the government or the state and then the political party, which currently fulfills that role. So that's completely missing in Hungary. There is The, the, the line between state and party is gone. So Fidesz, again, the, the governing party, mm-hmm. is pretty much the state. They are the government. There, There is no substantive difference between the two. And at the same time, Fidesz is is really, uh, at the end of the day, it's Orban himself. So that the final central arena of power that they've constructed 
is him. So the government is all bad. It, it is basically, and it, it of course it's a very broad and complex structure, institutionally, mm-hmm. formally, and informally. But all all the lines lead back to Orban, who who is really, and and it is impressive because we rarely see this in modern politics that someone can really consolidate power to such an extent uh, around himself and 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 his sort of very immediate family members as well. So it is quite fascinating. Uh, so pretty much his views reflect the party's views, mm-hmm. right? You yeah, see, because this, he's the party. He is the party. If one day he comes out, he says whatever his Ministry of Propaganda has come up with the day before, and he makes a speech. And you'll see this, that every single member of Fidesz, all the government members, all the, the government influencers, because we have those as well. So is it... it Government influences. Yeah, they're they're basically the government is spending many many millions of foreigns on on social media influencers. Oh, so basically like influencers like Kim Kardashian, but in Hungary. Yeah, and Kim they, Kardashian, but it's it's, but it's, it's for a, the government. It's a dude with a mustache <laughs> who says racist and homophobic. Oh style. yeah, well, using taxpayer money, it does have a tangible effect on public discourse. Right, so you see them through ads and stuff, but people are not like. Well, I'm a big fan of this. Yeah, they're not going to go with the mustache. Yeah, let me look up this <laughs> this mustache racist. But because they spend Facebook advertisements and they understand the algorithms very well, they make sure that these figures will pop up. Orban will say something, and then pretty much everyone within the regime structure is going to repeat those same key phrases throughout the days, and it's almost like a choreography. It's like a weird dance. That it's this top-down structure when the leader says something and then everyone picks it up and you see then their media outlets will pick it up and the news anchors will repeat all these these catchphrases. Who knows what you know the individual Viktor Orban thinks about the world? Mm-hmm. I'm not particularly sure if he has an ideology. He st- so just for context, this person started out as a radical liberal. Fidesz was a radical liberal party in the beginning. And then in the early 90s, he kind of realized that there wasn't too much political room for that because there were other parties more successfully filling this demand. So he said, okay, you know, what we'll do is we'll adopt this sort of somewhat conservative, but back then still not radical conservative, so the centrist conservative somewhat religious stuff, so somewhat akin to what the Conservative Party is supposed to be in the UK. And then they tried that, and they realized that, oh, you know what, we can appeal to even more people if we go much further to the extreme. And that's when this this whole party and Orban himself suddenly became this super conservative, super religious person. Again, this is a man who in the early 90s in the parliament was making fun of priests, was making fun of religion. He was sent out of the parliament hearings multiple times because he was being so disrespectful. And that's also arguably because right-wing conservative people are more comfortable with authority and they're more comfortable with, you know, one entity telling you what to do and how to live your lives. And that's, of course, conducing to a hybrid regime that wants to do just that. So I would say that as oftentimes their rhetoric and their ideology is outrageous. Mm-hmm. And yes, the, the, the regime is openly homophobic, it's xenophobic, it's transphobic. It is incredibly dismissive, like their views on women is, is medieval. Like we have prominent Fidesz figures saying that the highest duty and pleasure of a woman is to give birth to as many children as they can and that they shouldn't have careers. So yeah, it's pretty shocking. So there, there's always some need for an enemy. 
for 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 a, a them against us, and that uh, has been found in external groups, whether it's George Soros or whether it's the bureaucrats from Brussels or the Americans or the secret Jews. All of these have, of course, been identified as as the them, but they also find them internally. And so that's why you see when they spew homophobic stuff, it's because, okay, here's another group we can target. It's always a battle, it's always a war, and that he just continues to win, but it justifies his existence and the existence of his political system, because there's always some sense of threat that the Hungarians must be protected from. Uh, let's talk about one of the last points of the, of the session. Yeah. Not, not the therapy session, but more... Well, the, <laughs> this kind of, by the way, I will say, this almost feels like therapy, so thank you for that. Yeah, yeah well, you don't know my hourly rate yet. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, as in any extreme regime, we can expect some form of uh, political reaction or a rebellion from the people. Do you think that there is any structured or unstructured movements reacting to Orban's government and policies? Yeah, that's that's a somewhat depressing question, and that b brings us back to the role of the EU. So, in in many authoritarian regimes, less so in hybrid regimes, but but to some extent there as well, there will be people dissatisfied with the regime, right? Uh, for whatever reasons, whether they're ideological or purely materialistic, there will be some sense of opposition, and due to the repressive nature of these regimes it's usually difficult to leave them. So the people displaced with the regime are sort of stuck within. And so they can formulate some sense of organized or unorganized opposition to it. Now, since Hungary and the EU, the borders are quite literally open. Not only are they open, but it is very easy to relocate to another country where you can immediately find a job if you speak a language and where you can move all your assets and begin a new life. Now, of course, the people most inclined to do that will be the ones who, again, have some sort of higher levels of education, speak languages, have some experience. Now, these are also predominantly the people who are unsatisfied with Orban. And so we see this when there, there, there are hundreds of thousands of Hungarians, and, and the figures are, are uncertain and inaccurate because, of course, the state doesn't re report them accurately, and then the, the other side doesn't report it accurately as well. But it's safe to say that there's hundreds of thousands of Hungarians living outside of Hungary. And these are people who predominantly left because they just couldn't stand the situation anymore. And these are the people that would ideally formulate the basis of any sort of social or civic resistance to this regime. But we don't really have that because they're all gone. Many of them are, are like myself, you know, young people or young professionals who are very critical of the regime. And so that undermines the extent to which you'd see any sort of social resistance. So you were telling me about, before this podcast, um, your ethnographic study. Yes. So you, well, actually, can you talk about it yourself? Because I don't want to go into something else. Yeah, no, so I, um, in, in my PhD field work, I've, done an ethnographic study and, and I'm putting it in air quotes because I can hear the anthropologists going it's not the real ethnography because it didn't last 30 years and whatever uh, which it didn't so it's, it was a political ethnography to clarify an ethnographic study is uh, when uh, the researcher dives directly into the, the the group of people that they're studying 
and they spend some time with them and they act as if they were part of the group. So your definition is kind of correct. So the idea of it's very broad. So no, no, no. It just depends on the study. Yeah, yeah. Ethnography is it's participatory research. So the idea is that you you enter a a research site. Your personal presence has a big influence on your research. Now there's different levels of participation. So sometimes you'd see things referred to as ethnography, even though all the researcher has done is to go and observe some stuff, like mm -hmm. go to protests or something. But then more commonly you see is that, yeah, you kind of join the group that you are studying or interested in. It is very rarely done secretively. So you, you mostly tell the group that this is the case. This was the case in, in my research as well. That's the only way I could have gotten ethical approval as well. Of a specific Hungarian party in the opposition, which is not a part of the form formal opposition so it's it's a party it's it's the two-tailed dog party which uh oof, it kind of started as a satirical joke party and then it evolved into some sense of direct democracy anti-establishment thing so some like think think a, a less well-structured version of the of the Cinque Stelle movement in Italy. I basically joined this party and worked on their campaign because Hungary had elections in April. And I was basically interested oh, in... Who saying, won? Well, who won? <laughs> and, and that's why it's also depressing because, yeah, uh, Fidesz won overwhelmingly. They, they, it's their biggest victory ever. But my research question was basically to, on the one hand, see how we can analyze a hybrid regime throughout the perspective of an anti-establishment political party such as this because they have a lot of insight into how the regime operates they have a lot of insight into how the opposition op operates i i can't disclose certain things but let's just agree that there is some viability to the idea that the opposition is co-opted uh, mm -hmm. and, and that the regime has considerable influence over them and then i was also just interested in in finding out whether a sort of grassroots anti-establishment thing can have any sort of political success or any influence on on a hybrid regime like Hungary. Spoilers for my PhD thesis, but the, the answer to the first question is yes, it was very insightful. I learned a lot about how Hungarian politics and society operates. The second question, the answer is pretty much a no. Like this, this party, um, as, as disorganized and unstructured they are, doesn't really have any ways in which it could meaningfully influence a hybrid regime that is as mature and as extensive as Hungary. And, and that brings us to the election results, which is, yes, Fidesz won, the opposition lost, and the party I was working with didn't make it to parliament. That, and that sort of wraps up this whole idea, is that many people in Hungary are kind of unsatisfied but but they still remain in this in this minority that doesn't have much influence. So thank you very much, Christoph, for coming today for this episode. You are our very first guest, and I hope I am honored by this. <laughs> Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I hope that you had a nice time. I did. So if you guys want to follow us on Instagram, we are KCL Politics. If you have any suggestions, if you want to feature on the show, you can just send us a message and we'll be glad to reply to you. Uh, the next episode will be next week at 6 p.m. on Wednesday, as usual. As usual, it's the second one, but yeah. But by then, it will be usual. <laughs> exactly, yes. might as well, you know, set it clear. <laughs> uh, so yeah, thank you everybody for listening and see you very soon.